You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. and I have the privilege of serving on the communion team. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew 25, 1 through 13 from the NIV. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is God's word. Thank you, Linda. We are coming towards the end of our series through the parables of the Gospels and the series we've been calling the Stories of Jesus, looking at this tale end specifically about short stories of the coming of Jesus. And today, we're asking the question, whether you're new to church and you're exploring the Christian faith or you've been a Christian for many years, the question is, are you ready? Let's pray and let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to us so that all of us would be men and women who are ready to give an account of our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person here matters to you. Even those joining us online, we pray that you would speak to us We desire to be those who are ready, watching for you to set things right in the world and ready for us to give an account of our lives because we believed upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. I pray that all of us would put our faith and trust in him. And for anyone that doesn't know you, that they would come to know you and for your church that we be living in such a way that we are ready. Spirit of God, speak. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. The 26-mile-long Boston Marathon is a well-known endurance course. And on the 21st of April, 1980, race history was made. A New Yorker, 26 years old, crossed the finish line with a record-breaking time of two hours and 31 minutes. There was only one problem. She didn't actually run 
the race. As she accepted the winner's wreath on the podium, people quickly began to notice the lack of sweat and perspiration. And even the race officials struggled to recognize her face. For the truth is, she actually jumped in on the final half mile, completely decked out in official race apparel. But she never admitted to cheating. And though she was personally pressed with accusations, she insisted that she did not cheat, believing that she had legitimately run and won. She even stated that she would do another marathon as proof, but she never did. I've told this story often to make a point about what we'll call religiosity. It's like running a race that you've never really entered. You can be wearing the right uniform and even running alongside of others and yet not actually be in the race at all. Now, we may not live in denial about something as obvious as claiming to run a marathon we never entered, but it's nonetheless easy for all of us to wear the outfit of religion and to be deceived into thinking that it equals salvation. Are we really in the race? Or more specifically, are we ready to give an account for our lives? That is the question before us today in this parable, and I find similarities to the story you just heard. For all the characters in this short story given by Jesus, they all appear to have the same uniform. They're all they all look like they're in the wedding party. They even have the lamps. But the end of the story reveals that some were never prepared in the first place. Which one are you? Our knowledge of wedding customs in the ancient culture are somewhat limited if you do your reading, but we do know that wedding festivities would often last up to a week or even two and were very often unpredictable. And the virgins mentioned in the parable are equivalent to what we would call bridesmaids, a key part of the wedding. And so this story, though simple, actually has several elements of surprise, which serve as lessons for us all. Friends, the Bible teaches that one day Jesus Christ will return. He's come first 2,000 years ago to live die and rise for us. We're also told that he will come again. And on that day, there will be final judgment and new creation. Will you be ready? The parable is told to that point. And again, it has three surprises that teaches us three lessons about being ready. And the first you need to know is this. Outward appearance is not enough. If you want to be ready to give an account for your life, outward appearance is not enough. Notice 
half of the bridesmaids in this parable, of course, are unprepared for the celebration and they do not end up making it in at all. But there's an interesting detail to note about the parable and that is that they are all dressed the same. They all have the same appearance as it begins in verse one and two. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins or bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Of course, the main point in the parable is the shock that they experienced, these foolish bridesmaids, when they discovered that they are excluded from the celebration and shut out. But unlike the parable of the wicked servant that we looked at last week, who, upon waiting for his master, abused the other servants and lived a very lawless life, the characters in this story are not portrayed as being given over to lawlessness. Even though five were foolish, they weren't doing anything overtly wild or crazy of anything. We might say it's a warning about religiosity because religiosity is all about appearance. Some commentators believe and even speculate that this parable has specific application to the nation of Israel who had the appearance of waiting for the promised Messiah that the prophets had told would come one day and bring redemption not just to Israel but the whole world. This Savior is Jesus Christ. But when Jesus arrived, many in Israel were not ready. Jesus even called some of the religious leaders in his day whitewashed tombs. It's not a compliment. <laughs> Meaning they were careful to clean on the outside, but inwardly they were dead. That is, they gave themselves over to going through the motions. They had the religious uniform on. They were doing the things that you would normally associate with good religious people, and yet they were spiritually dead. This is a lesson that goes far back into the Old Testament. Jesus, in rebuking the religious leaders earlier in Matthew's gospel, he actually quotes the prophet Isaiah. He said, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. For that is what religion is. It's all about human effort. And so the lesson, friends, could not be more clear. Outward appearance is not enough. And it's a lesson for every one of us to hear. Because there are many today, maybe even some here, who believe it is simply enough to attend church, maybe even give generously to the church and other charities and, and do good works. You might even think of yourself as a very good person. Oh, I'm not like those other people. I'm not like those lawless people. But listen, those outward acts are not always evidence of inward 
transformation. The lesson appears over and over again throughout Scripture. It's not merely enough to do good works. And many people who give themselves to these good works, they often confuse it as being equal to salvation. But no amount of outward appearance or religious good works can ever save you. The Bible often refers to to sin as kind of a spiritual disease. And if sin is the disease that we all have, we're all terminal, our sins, plural, are the symptoms. Now, some of the symptoms might look different from person to person, but we're all spiritually terminal. Religion is like trying to put Band-Aids on someone who has an internal disease in an attempt to cover it up. And indeed, it might, but it doesn't provide a cure. And putting your trust in that outward appearance can actually blind you to your need for a savior because you think that you're fine. You look around and say, look, I'm good, I'm here. I'm at church, I'm doing the things. I'm even giving money, I'm serving. I don't lie like my neighbor does. I'm probably better than some of the people here in church, if I'm honest. <laughs> See, if we were warned last week about being lawless, we're warned today about being legalistic. And you need to know this, both lawlessness and legalism will leave you unprepared to give an account for your life. But the lesson about legalism is necessary because it's hard for many to receive because to them, the problem is not as obvious. If you're living a completely decadent life, it's usually very obvious. And few who are engaged in that kind of a lifestyle would deny it. But tell someone who's giving themselves to doing really good things, thinking that that will somehow earn their way to heaven, telling them that they need a savior, that message is often met with anger. Are you telling me I'm not? Look, look at what I do. I'm fine. Look at my uniform. But make no mistake, outward appearance does not equal inside transformation. Now, some will hear this and think, well, I'm around all these other people who seem to have this inside out, inside out in, you know, transformation. So what if I get close to them? Well, that leads to the next surprise and the next lesson of the parable. Number one, if you want to be ready, you need to know that outward appearance is not enough. But number two, and this is important, spirituality cannot be borrowed. True spirituality cannot be borrowed from someone else. Again, the bridesmaids, they all looked the same. They even had the same lamps. And yet the meat of the parable tells us that they still were not ready. Verse three through 10. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. 
Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Along the way, the lamps of the foolish had run out. And it is interesting that they tried to borrow oil. For that is what many do when it comes to faith. They try to borrow it. Now, it is true that if I'm around genuine believers, if you're around other Christians, we can absolutely benefit from them. I can benefit from being around other people who have a real relationship with Jesus, but I can't borrow their relationship with Jesus. It is possible to have an outward appearance, you're engaged with good works, and even to have a lamp that looks the same to others, but have no oil in it. Yes, there are certain things you can benefit from being around. You can learn valuable lessons from others. You can gain insight from others. You can receive practical help and support from others. But on the other hand, there are certain things that you cannot borrow. You cannot borrow someone's salvation. This is a particularly important point if you were raised in a Christian home or if you have Christian relatives or maybe you grew up in a particularly Christian area. It's not enough for you to just be around other Christians, though you might benefit from them. Being around them will never save you. You will not be able to say when you give an account for your life to Jesus Christ, I knew a lot of your people. (laughs) I knew a lot of Christians. You cannot borrow salvation. If you're here this morning, you've never made a personal decision to say, Jesus, you are my Savior. Not just Jesus, you're my parents' Savior. Or you're my children's Savior. My grandchildren's Savior. My cousin's Savior. My friend's Savior. My neighbor's Savior. If you have not yet said and declared, Jesus, you are my Savior, then you are not ready. But you can be today if you say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you as my Savior. Though I might benefit from all these other men and women, and though they have acted like signposts, perhaps, pointing me to you, today I choose to trust in you. Because I realize that salvation cannot be borrowed. I must make that decision for myself. Some things cannot be borrowed. There's also a lesson here for the church, for Christians. Even if you are a Christian, it's still important for you to know that there are some things that you cannot borrow from others. Let me just give you a few examples. I'm sad to report that you cannot borrow someone's maturity. 
Wouldn't that be great? Because I'm like often super immature and it would be amazing if I could borrow my wife's maturity. Because we all know, if you know the chat act, we all know who's more mature. And it ain't the pastor. <laughs> I mean, sometimes just, you know, by association, I'm often grouped with her and that's great. <laughs> but I cannot borrow from her maturity. Nor can you borrow from the maturity of others. You also can't borrow someone's character. You're like, hey, I'm just being like full of wrath and anger and you're so patient. Can I just get a little bit of that? You can't just grab it and borrow it. Nor can you borrow someone else's holiness. Like, hey, I don't pray, but you pray. Can I just borrow some of the, can I get like the after effect? Will it like spill on me? You can't outsource your need to, to pray and to read scripture and to use the gifts that God has given you. You can't outsource that to other people. Nor can you borrow someone else's witness. You're like, hey, I've been terrible in the workplace. My, my coworkers would be shocked if they found out I was a Christian. But you have a good reputation at work. Can I borrow some of that? There are some things you cannot borrow. And another thing is readiness. You cannot borrow readiness. Being ready for the return of Jesus and to give an account for your life is not something that you can share with others. It is a personal decision. See, in all of these cases, the temptation is to trust in people and not in Christ. It is a perpetual danger. If you're not a Christian, it's a danger for you in a particular way. But even if you're a Christian, there's a danger of leaning on other people and trying to borrow from them for the maturity of your Christian life. The problem is that trusting in other people over Jesus, it will give you a false sense of security. Hey, I'm just leaning on the others. They're around. They're like doing the stuff. They're engaged with the stuff. So as long as I'm around them, I get a free pass and I don't have to engage. I think this lesson is key because I've known many who might even be genuine believers. But when they join a church, they're really joining because of how much they're leaning on a leader or other members of the church for their own spirituality. So much so that when I hear when people leave a church, and I'm not just talking about an individual church, but leave the church, capital C, because other people let them down, I often ask them, well, why did you join in the first place? Because if you read the New Testament, you know that the church is filled with broken people who are being remade by Jesus Christ. Inevitably, you are going to be let down. And so it is important that you're not leaning on finding your identity in or trying to borrow from their spirituality. Sure, you can benefit from it for your own growth, but you cannot borrow growth. Now, don't misunderstand me. A lot of pain and wrong has and can happen in the church. And when it does, it must be addressed. And there are times maybe that leaving a, a particular church might be necessary because of 
bad teaching or unrepentant sin, whatever it might be. But to do away with the church altogether because other people have let you down shows that your commitment was not ultimately to Christ, it was to people. And when those people let you down, you were out. Now, I don't say this without compassion because I know early on in my Christian life, even my own family, we'd seen it all. Backbiting, gossip, slander, deep wounds can happen in the church. But here's the lesson I learned early on, and I pray to God that he will not let me forget it. That the unfaithfulness of others will never be a good reason to stop following Jesus. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying that it's not messy. But the reason I'm a Christian is not how faithful Christians are, it's how faithful Jesus is. The unfaithfulness of people will never be a good reason to stop following Jesus. Paul knew this. He knew this well. In fact, he's so eager and keen to make sure that people aren't trying to like outsource their faith or trust in other people that he even writes about it in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says in chapter one, speaking to a divided church, he says, one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one could say that you were baptized in my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There were some who were saying, well, I'm relying on Paul. I'm relying on Apollos. Some of you are like, well, I, I listen to the Cephas podcast every week. Like, he's my spiritual leader. So if he falls, you're undone. You leave the church. The question is, where was your faith? Where was it? Where was your faith? See, the New Testament is brutally honest. If you read the New, if, I think every new Christian, if, if you're a new Christian, you should just read the whole New Testament because it will totally manage your expectations. In fact, I invite you to read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church because it's like Christians gone wild. Like if you thought, some of you are like new and you're like, oh my gosh, this place is perfect. Two weeks later, you're like, she lied about me. I'm leaving. I'm like, whoa, whoa, I think you have the wrong expectations. <laughs> like we are messed up people who are being transformed by a glorious savior. That, that's the deal, the messy church. And therefore, it is so important that we're not trying to borrow from somebody else's spirituality or put people over Christ, but put Christ first. Because though people may be unfaithful, Jesus will always be faithful. And he alone is worth our faith and trust. Are you trying to borrow what cannot be borrowed? Are you trying to just say, well, I'm around others, so, so it's good? My friend, they're spiritual, so I can like coast along. The rest of the people here, I'm sure they're, they're fine. I can just be righteous by association. 
Friends, you can benefit a lot from the people in this room, but you cannot borrow their salvation, nor can I borrow yours. I cannot borrow your maturity. I cannot borrow your holiness. I cannot borrow your readiness. So what is the answer? What is the solution? If you wanna be ready, you need to know that outward appearance is not enough, that spirituality cannot be borrowed, and here's the key point. Relationship with Jesus is everything. Relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus is everything. Is this parable about whether or not you are spiritually awake? Well, yes, but there's an important detail, don't miss it, about what it means to be spiritually awake. Notice all of the bridesmaids fell asleep. Did you notice that? It wasn't as if just the foolish ones fell asleep. They were all there. They all looked at it. doesn't say like, hey, five of the virgins went to Vegas. They were not ready. doesn't say that. All of the bridesmaids are there, uniform on, lamp ready. They all fell asleep. So what was the ultimate difference? Here's the key. Don't miss it. Verse 11 through 13. Later, the others also came, the foolish bridesmaids. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. There's a message here for those of you who are not yet Christians and an important lesson for those who are. First, why were the foolish bridesmaids left out? And why were they ultimately unprepared? What is it that they lacked? It was a relationship with the groom. The groom does not say, I no longer know you. Nor does the groom say, I forgot about you. The groom says, I do not know you. In the parable, there may have been some initial enthusiasm amongst these five foolish bridesmaids. They may have even known others in the wedding party, but they did not know the groom. And therefore, they were not prepared because they did not have a real relationship. Like a sprinter entering in at the end of a marathon, they were never officially in. You must have a personal, real relationship with Jesus. It is a choice that every one of us must make. The wise bridesmaids, they also fell asleep. So why were they safe in the end? They were safe because they had 
a relationship. So let me say this. Being ready means being spiritually awake in a relationship with Jesus. That's what it means. Being ready means being spiritually awake in a relationship with Jesus. And many of the commentators suggest that the oil perhaps is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. For we know that when you believe upon Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit of God makes his home in you. We're told that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who empowers us and enables us to live a changed life. It's not on our power, it's his power. He's the one that enables us to be a light. And so, friends, the lesson for the church is to guard against being spiritually asleep by maintaining nearness to Jesus. As we mentioned last week, the followers of Jesus often fall asleep on the job. Even Peter and all of Jesus' closest disciples in Christ's hour of need on the night he was betrayed before he was handed over to be crucified, Christ's best friends fell asleep. And yet they were restored by the grace of Jesus. We need to be on guard against spiritual drowsiness. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. But being spiritually asleep for the Christian means you know Christ, but you're not drawing near to him actively, and therefore you are not engaged with his work or being effective in what he's called you to do. We might say you are a sleepy Christian. And let me tell you this. The devil would love for all of us to be sleepy Christians. Because if the devil cannot get you to deny Christ or denounce Christ, he will simply distract you from Christ. If the devil can't get you to just outright just throw your life away, he wants you to fall asleep. Charles Spurgeon, who is often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, famously said, the devil is never too busy to rock the cradle of the sleeping Christian. He's perfectly happy. He doesn't need to be. He's like, why waste arrows when I can just give you a little like, you know, Tylenol PM spiritually? He just wants you to just be totally unengaged, disinterested, unaffected. He's like, shh, don't listen to that really loud guy on a Sunday morning. Just, nah, it's annoying. It's probably emotionally unstable anyway. Just, just put it out of your mind. Don't go to the prayer meeting. Are you kidding? Like, why would you go to a community group like NASCAR's on or, I don't know, whatever it is for you. <laughs> even things that are not in any way inherently bad, if we put them before Christ and they take precedent in our lives, they can cause us to fall asleep. And we must be on guard. To be clear, falling asleep 
is not equal to losing your salvation. There are times, though, where we will fall asleep and fail. But will we listen to the wake-up call of Jesus when we do? That's the question. We would call that repentance. The voice of the Holy Spirit, his alarm clock, will we awaken to the alarm clock? Many of us are like me with alarm clocks. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm the like eight alarm clocks guy, and I hit snooze on all of them. Now, I still get up early, but that's why I set them an hour before. My wife's like, why don't you just set one when you need to get? I'm like, oh, no, no, it's, it's a process. <laughs> and they're all different. And does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, they're like a different chime just to mess with me psychologically <laughs> to finally get me up. The Holy Spirit is like calling you. Will you listen? Will you arise from sleep? That is the question. Christ in his love will call you to wake up. This language is actually used throughout the Bible, and one of the most powerful examples is from Paul the Apostle, who calls Christians to be awake, and he describes what he means. This is a powerful passage. It's dynamite. Romans 13, he says, and do this. He's speaking to Christians. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. What a passage. What's he doing? He's speaking to Christians. Do this. Everything he said earlier in the letter, to pray, to love, to serve. Why? Knowing the time that now it is high time to wake up for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. What is he talking about? Nearer. Well, salvation is spoken of in the Bible in three tenses, past, present, and future. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And one day I shall be saved from the presence of sin. And what a glorious day that will be. But right now, we're living in the already and the not yet. I have been saved, but we're on our way to glory. Now is not the time to fall asleep. The night is far spent. Time is marching on. The day is at hand. Christ has come. He is coming again. Therefore, cast off the works of darkness. Notice he doesn't say drop off the works of darkness. Or just let it like roll off. See, some of us with our, our sins and our, our dark habits... We're just like, I'm just going to put it on the table and see if it rolls off, see if gravity does its work. No, we need to throw off the works of darkness. We need to make a decisive turn away from sin. And to do what? To put on Jesus. Like a garment. That's what it says. It literally says to, to put on Jesus Christ, which speaks of nearness to him. See, Think about the metaphor that is often used in the Bible to describe the relationship between God and his people. It's a marriage. 
The church is even called the bride of Christ. And like when you get married, somebody else moves in, you discover that how you live actually affects others. Those of you who don't have roommates, you live by, you don't know yet. You just think, it's like, this is called normal. Let me tell you, I learned many things when I got married. Habits that were previously acceptable in my estimation were no longer acceptable when I got married. See, as many of you know, I love music. I've played music for most of my life. And in my room before I was married, I had so much gear. And if you know anything about music gear, it involves cabling. I had so many wires and cables in my room, it looked like snakes in an Indiana Jones movie, just all over the place, perfectly acceptable to me. I was making magic, people. Well, that part's debatable, but like, I was doing it. I was like a, you know, a, a mad professor in my audio laboratory. But when I got married, my wife's not down with that. What, no, no cables? Or my car, my car was filled with cassette tapes. Anybody know? The kids, you know, because you can buy them now for like $100. I got a Nirvana cassette tape for a million dollars. I used to record all my vinyl. Yes, I collected vinyl, put it on cassette tape, and I had boxes in my car. It took up all the room, and my wife's like, who are you? This is not normal behavior. This new relationship exposed things that needed to go. Friends, the same is true. When you accept Christ, he moves into your house like a home and his perfect presence exposes what needs to stay, what needs to start, and what needs to stop in your life. The question is, will you listen to him? It is for the sake of greater and deeper intimacy with Christ that we get rid of the sins and snares of our life and allow him to rule and reign over every part. The book of Revelation contains a well-known but often misunderstood letter from Jesus to a lukewarm church. He says to the church in a city called Laodicea, who boasted and bragged about their relationship with Christ, even though they were not actually engaged in it. And so in the middle of his letter, he says these words to the church and perhaps to some of us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Some Christians think that this is an evangelistic text, but he is actually speaking to the church, to those he loves, he corrects, and he rebukes. In this verse, Jesus is not saying that the church has become unsaved. He's saying that the church is his house, but he's not being let in. There might be ownership, but there's no intimacy. They claim to have it when in fact they were not engaged in it. Revelation 3.20 is not an invitation to conversion. It's an invitation to communion. He calls us to draw near. And that beautiful word that Jesus gives to them and to us is repent. A strong but beautiful word because it's always good news to turn away from what is evil and to turn towards Christ. Repentance is not a way of earning something that doesn't belong to you, but enjoying what is given to you as a free gift. 
because Jesus Christ died on a cross for all of your sins and rose again for your justification. And repentance is turning again to him and receiving anew and afresh. So the big question is, how can I be ready on that day? The answer is to be ready every day. If you do not know Jesus, receive him today as your savior. Because the words too late are the worst words you could ever hear. But if you can hear my voice, it is not too late. Receive him today. Say, Jesus, save me. I believe you died for me and rose for me. I trust in you as my savior. If you're a Christian and you become distant, draw near to him. That's how you are ready. And if you are near, stay near. Allow him to encourage you, strengthen you, so that our lamp would burn brightly as we await for him. And this is an opportunity for us right now to draw near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way through the cross and the resurrection for us to know you and to draw near. And I pray first for those who have never put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that right now they would. That they would simply say from their hearts, Jesus, save me. And Father, for us as a church, for those who, who are near, I pray that they would stay near though they might feel discouraged in the waiting, as waiting can be so hard. Though they might feel as if they're in a season of dryness and discouragement, God, I pray that they would find great encouragement by the power of your spirit today to keep running that race. And Father, for those who are distant, for those who've become lukewarm, I pray that today would be a moment of repentance that they would turn back towards you, knowing that you have paid the price for their forgiveness. They only need to ask. So may this time be an opportunity for us all to draw near to you, that we might be changed, that we might be ready. In Jesus' name, amen.